listen, as John said, I've been in youth ministry for quite a while. I've been at Grace Baptist for about four years. Um, I've been in working with young people for about 15 years, however, and it has been a journey, and I've actually been able to see kind of a generational shift. I've started with millennials. I now am working with Generation Z. We only call them Generation Z because we have no idea what to do with them or what to call them or how to think about them. Um, and so there have been trends and there have been uh, trajectories and, and, and ways in which we uh, need to strategize about how to approach them with the gospel. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to speak to you from uh, the text of Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Okay? And, and what I want to focus in on from that text is for us collectively to have gospel convictions if you are working with the younger generation in any capacity. Now look, I know where I'm standing right now. I'm at the Masters University Chapel service and I just said to us all that we need to have gospel convictions. Everyone's like, well, get in line, groupie. We've heard this before. Firstly, I'm not a groupie. Secondly, secondly what I want to focus in on is how to be specific with our gospel convictions for the sake of the younger generation. As we all know, ambiguity in life can be very, very harmful, especially in the Christian life. Case in point. Suppose I have a teenage daughter. I, I don't. I have two young daughters. They'll be teenagers one day. Suppose my teenage daughter comes bebopping into the house, bubbling over with excitement. She says, Mom and Dad, I have some fantastic news. I met a boy. And he's cute, and he's funny, and he's really into me. And the best part is, he wants to take me out this Friday night, but you would totally approve because, wait for it, he says he believes in God. Now, if that is the full measure and extent of my litmus test for who gets to date my daughter, I have problems, right? Specificity is needed. Ambiguity reigns in that scenario. I have no doubt that everyone in this room is committed to a belief in God. You see, you can't leave it there. Because Mormons and Catholics are committed to the same belief. What I want to focus in on is how are our gospel convictions setting us apart and defining who we are and what the mission is. And really, we can't talk about gospel convictions apart from talking about the Christian life in general. Because the Christian life will be the platform from which our convictions spring from. And so really, when you think about the Christian life, I, what I'd like to do is really quick, just like run through a little mental exercise. When someone says, describe the Christian life, use your, use your brain, what word images come to your mind that help inform your thinking? Now listen, what I'm not asking, I'm not asking Christianity proper. Because right now I think everybody's thinking about a cross and thinking about an open grave, and that, that, that would be correct. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking what does the life look like that is living out that theology? So when someone would come up to you and say, hey, describe what the Christian life is like, what do you think about in terms of what's informing your thoughts? I'll run through maybe four possible answers you would receive if you were just to ask the average Joe attender across America, hey, what's the Christian life like? Here are four possible answers you would receive. Number one, some people might view the Christian life like a business transaction. You just sign on with God, you sign on the bottom line, and then once you do, there's nothing more to think about. You're in. 
So my question is, someone who has that view of the Christian life, what do their convictions look like for Christian ministry? I can tell you what it probably looks like if that's their view. It probably looks like something along the lines of bare minimum Christianity. I will sign on my name with God, I'll walk the aisle, I'll pray the prayer, I'll get dunked, and then I will agree to attend a one-hour-a-week church service for the rest of my life, and in exchange, I get tipped out of hell and into heaven. Now, some people might view the Christian life like maybe it's their newfound religion of therapy. Jesus is their newfound therapist, and so their understanding of the Christian life is sitting on the lap of deity, receiving wholeness and, and, and nurturing and, and, and meaning and significance, and so it's an entire theological system built on the foundation of empathy. So the question is, if that's your view of the Christian life, what are you committed to in your ministry? Some people might view the Christian life as it's high-level marketing. It's a picture of winning. It's a picture of success. It's fast-paced. Faith is viewed as the key that will unlock and give you access to anything you desire in life. It's fast-paced. It's high-octane. It's your best life now sort of thing. If that's your view of the Christian life, then what are you committed to in gospel ministry? And then lastly, for some people, again, we're just moving through four possible scenarios here. For some people, it's just rules. The Christian life is just a bunch of precepts. It's just a matter of acquiring the right theological information. It's about managing externals and keeping up appearances. If that's your view of the Christian life, then what are you committed to? Now, we've just run through four of them. I'm, I'm sure that there would be just a mixture, just a collage of different answers people would give you as what is the meaning, what is the meaning. We haven't turned to the Bible yet. Have you ever noticed that when the Bible goes to describe the Christian life, it's not flattering whatsoever? Sheep, following a shepherd. There's nothing romantic about that at all. Sheep smell, and they're stupid. War. War is another image that the Bible gives us to inform what the Christian life is like. Think about putting on the full armor of God as one would dress and prepare for combat. And, and then the image that we're going to look at today, a foot race. And we're, we're not talking like a 40-meter dash. We're not talking like even a marathon when you think of its, its proper scope. We're talking a foot race that is the extension of your entire human existence. In fact, the word that we're going to see in the text today that describes this race is agnon. It's where we get agony from. Even if you like to run, some of you do, um, you have to at least acknowledge two things. Number one, it's not easy. It's really hard. You have to break your body. You have to discipline your body. You have to build your body back up. You have to earn that endurance. I met a guy in our church about a month ago. He has completed 22 marathons in his lifetime. What's his problem? <laughs> I don't even have a context for that. So, number one, it's hard, but number two, the race itself has its fair share of undignified moments. Again, the word agnon is where we get the word agony. This is the picture the Bible gives us to describe what the Christian life is like. So then, if that's the image that we're given from the Scripture, how then are our convictions framed by that picture? 
Now, before we get into the text of Hebrews 12, what I want to do is just generally talk about what's going on in the book of Hebrews, real quick-like. The book of Hebrews, as one author puts it, is like a Consumer Reports magazine where the author, whom we do not know, is taking the person and work of Jesus Christ and laying him next to the religious system of the Old Testament. And the purpose of him doing this is he wants to encourage his audience by informing them over and over and over again with proof that Christ is better. And while the author will actually achieve his goal in proving that Jesus is better, he's also not going to shy away from the fact that living the life of Christ is not always easy. In fact, it can be outright dangerous. Now, it seems absurd that the way to go about encouraging people is to face them with the human reality of suffering, but that's just the thing about the Scripture. It's not going to shy away from the hard things. It's going to give you the good, the bad, and the ugly, only that when it does, it's not going to leave you orphaned and not knowing where to turn. God helps us in his word. So the author is going to move through his book. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He will crescendo into chapter 11, which is, as you all know, the great hall of faith. And we're going to be ushered uh, as readers. We ushered down the corridor of faith, and we're going to be stopping at different portraits of men and women that have gone before us. And we're going to look at Abel, and we're going to look at Noah, and we're going to look at Abraham, and Moses, and Rahab. These men and women that are shouting at us, hold fast. Shoulder to the plow. Keep going. Jesus is better. And so if you find that you are in need of restoration, rejuvenation, your faith is veering off, of course, the book of Hebrews is a tremendous resource to you and bringing you back home. And what we're going to see in the text that we're going to read, because we will just have left off the tour of the Hall of Faith here in chapter 12, we are going to receive three motivations from the text that will help inform us about how we should form our convictions, particularly for the younger generations. So let's go ahead and jump into this. Read with me in verse 1, chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, so the first motivation that we receive is consider the witnesses. Life is like a race, okay? Consider the witnesses. Now, something to remember about Hebrews 12, which is where we just would have left off if we were reading all the way through. Hebrews 12 is kind of a mixed bag. You, you, you have a lot of feel-good encouragements mixed in with a, a lot of not-so-feel-good considerations that are quite violent. So like, for example, in chapter 11, you're going to see in verse 32 through like 35, you're going to hear about men and women uh, in their ministry. They're doing things like being made strong in their weaknesses. They are putting whole armies to flight, okay? Uh, they're shutting the mouths of lions, and we read that, and especially if you're going into uh, vocational ministry, you're thinking like, this is the type of thing I'd like to participate in. You get real excited about that. And in fact, you look forward to people asking you, what has God called you to do? And you go, well, I... I I close the mouths of lions. That's what God's called me to do. That's natural, you know, given my proclivities and skill set. But then you, you reach like further down in the text, and uh oh, because like around verse thirty six, there's a shift, and it's gone from like God just moving mightily through agents to God moving mightily through the suffering of His agents because the ministry that is laid out before them, they're being mocked, being flogged put in chains and imprisoned, being stoned, 
put to death by the sword and being sawn in two, be warm and be filled. And you read that and you think, this is supposed to encourage me? Believe it or not, yes. Say, how? Well, the fact that we can consider these witnesses that have gone before us, the fact that we can look to them and experience human solidarity, the fact that we have particular convictions in, in God's word, which kind of makes us as a people, we could describe ourselves as biblical realists. We don't flower it up. We don't put glitter on it. It is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Thank God Jesus is better. And so we look to these witnesses, and the Bible's not shying away from what has happened to them. And in their suffering and in their testimony, they're shouting, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. Just like Paul is saying in Romans 8, I do not consider the sufferings of this present age to be comparable to the glory that will be mine and manifest in him. And so that becomes the focus. Not human suffering, which is kind of what we would tend to do as a people at times, just kind of wallow. No, no, the suffering has a purpose because it gives you a trajectory back to Jesus. And it's just strange, isn't it? It's just strange that like, even in the midst of suffering and, and tremendous sorrow that's unforeseen, when, when people do that together, the suffering is strangely sweet. Like in pastoral work, and not just for pastors, just being Christ followers in the body. Crisis hits close to home. You, you run to the hospital. You, you enter into the waiting room. You sit down. What are you going to say? There's nothing to say. You listen. You cry. And you're there. And strangely, that's just sweet. It's weird. It's a mystery. And yet it's a solidarity that we have together because of the perfect sufferings of Jesus that we're able to retreat in together. So consider the witnesses. And when you do experience that connection that God's people have always suffered on some level or some measure on a spectrum, it actually beckons you to do something. Because it's not just consider the witnesses for the sake of thinking about them. Sending them like mental hallmark thoughts. It beckons you to do something. And it tells us in the text to lay aside two things. Number one, it tells us to lay aside sin. Number two, it tells us to lay aside that which is so easily weighing us down. Now, the command to lay aside sin, we all understand that. No one's questioning that. It's sin. Sin is the seed of the curse, the reason for which Jesus died. We understand that. The command to lay aside that which easily weighs us down, that's where we're going to have some questions. And it's not that we don't understand the concept. We understand the concept of you've got to lay aside that which is weighing you down. Like, no one's running a marathon carrying dumbbells, right? We understand the concept. Where we have some questions is what constitutes as being weight. Well, this is where the answer is quite cumbersome because it is anything and everything. Know this. Even things that are intrinsically good, once they collide with the human element, can experience a conversion and become a weight, a distraction, a hindrance, or worse, sin. Even things that are intrinsically good. So it, 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 could be, it could be a leisure activity. It could be a hobby. It could be a relationship. It could be any sort of pursuit, educational, vocational. It could be anything that, that in and of itself it is, it is intrinsically good. 
However, once it collides with the human heart and mind, it becomes compromised, and it's left up to that individual to know how to biblically balance it. Let me give you a for instance. I know one of the base, couple of the baseball players here. Um, anyone on the baseball team in here? A couple of you? Okay. A few of you? Many of you? Uh, baseball, guys, is a morally neutral activity. It's morally neutral. However, the moment your heart and your mind, the human element, collides with that activity, baseball ceases to be a morally neutral activity. Suddenly, it's up to that individual to biblically balance and rightly prioritize where baseball fits underneath the lordship of Jesus. And this is so crucial because don't we know that something like a sport can get out of hand and become too predominant in someone's life that leads them to sin? Not that that has ever happened in the wide world of sports or anything like that. Perish the thought. But we have to understand how sin works in conjunction with that which can easily weigh us down. That's why there's that distinction made, but there's also kind of that built-in warning. These things can experience a conversion. And so what we need to do is we need to understand how they operate. I don't know what domains you are occupying. I don't know what activities you're involved with in your week-to-week, in your day-to-day. Just understand the things that occupy your calendar, your thought life, your affections, can be intrinsically good and can be to your benefit. However, it is up to you to biblically balance and rightly prioritize under the kind lordship of Christ where they should take their place. Because if you don't do that, if you're not disciplined enough to do that, it could hurt you and hurt your walk. But we're not done with verse 1. We're not done. I want to talk about that racetrack for a second. Now, I don't know much about a marathon. Some of you actually do. Some of you know what it's like to break your body, to discipline yourself. Uh, you, You know about the training. You know about the agony of the actual race. And you know about the overwhelming sense of accomplishment at the finish line. I know nothing about these things. Maybe one day I will. But here's what I do know about a marathon. You're not allowed to innovate the race. You're not allowed to cut corners and eke your way up to the finish line. It's called cheating. What does the text say about this race? Well, it's a track, it's a path that has been laid before you. It's marked out. We can clearly see it. We can run on it and and know what we're supposed to do and where we're supposed to go and where we're supposed to turn. So, okay, fine, I I can follow you. Um, The Christian life is like a race and we're meant to run on the racetrack, but how in the world do I know where to run? How do I know if I'm not cutting corners or if I am cutting corners? How, How do I know? Well, what do I run on? Remember, God helps us in his word. Just consider the the following scriptures. Psalm 119.32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart, or put it another way, uh, when you set my heart free. Psalm 23.3, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Isaiah 35 talks about a path that the, the righteous walk on. It's the way for the righteous. The wicked, they don't go on it, but the righteous must not Go off of it. Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, why take the time to talk about a narrow gate versus a wide gate or a narrow path versus a wide path? Because look at me, there are many paths to get to hell. Many paths lead there. The way to eternal life is narrow and singular. And so we're not allowed to take the racetrack and mess with it. You're not God. I'm not God. You're not allowed to take God's word and bend it and twist it so that it would acquiesce to your will because it makes more sense to you that way. You don't get to manipulate the racetrack. You're not God. I'm not God. You're not allowed to take the person and work of Jesus Christ and mess with that and speak differently about that than maybe the scripture does so that it would acquiesce to your sensibilities. You can't mess with the racetrack. You're not God. I'm not God. The path has been set before us. It's up to us to run. Yeah, the the race is yours. The race is yours. But that track, that path, that's his. Because he's the one who forged it. Moving on to verses 2 and 3. The second motivation that we're going to see is this. We're told to look to Christ, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Now let me describe to you what is popular in our religious culture. Okay, not Christian culture, religious culture. We live in a very religious culture. What is popular in our religious culture is to elevate the journey over the destination. Okay, because the journey is where you find yourself. The journey is is where you find the meaning and the beauty and the significance and the purpose of life. The destination, that really doesn't matter because it's never really been the point. In our religious culture, it is extremely, extremely popular and you will be applauded tenfold for wanting to go on a journey in searching for God. However, it is not a popular thing to actually find him. Because if you do, you're arrogant. Now the biblical understanding of this is quite the reverse. The destination is the point. Okay? The destination is where you find the beauty and the meaning and the significance and the fulfillment because the destination is Christ. The path that led there, who who really cares about that? That would nearly kill you, but that's not the point. The biblical worldview is say, what does it matter If you take the scenic route, if by the end of it you fall off a cliff, the purpose is Christ. You fix your eyes there. And I'm sorry, but in dealing with the younger generation, here is just what has been pumped into them as a religious culture. Let's just get your journal, get your Bible, you go on your little walkabout with God, just a Jesus and me operation. Don't worry about anyone else. You just got to get alone with God. Stop getting alone with God. Get alone with God. You got to do that. For the purpose of coming back together. Your quiet time, your devotional life, all has its fruition and purpose in coming back together. Millennials and Generation Zers, whatever we're going to call them, the one thing that I really wish they would work on is knowing how to come together as a body. But everybody's so stuck in their particular groove of, oh, I'm just, I, I, God's called me, into, I, it's just Jesus in me. Where are you going? I don't know, I'm on a journey. What do you mean you don't know where you're going? Who does this? The purpose of individual experiences 
the purpose of you running your unique and individual race is not to the exclusion or to the neglect of other people in the body of Christ. And when we romanticize the individual journey that God has us on so that we can avoid, I don't know, people, accountability, oversight, we might sound spiritual, we're fools. Don't elevate the journey over the destination. The destination is Jesus. That's the point. Run to that. Who cares about the sin of crop? Do hard things. Have convictions. Believe something. There's younger generations that, that's looking to you. And they're going to need to be anchored. You can either help that process or you can hinder it. We look to Jesus. And as we do, the text actually tells us to look away on the horizon. Look off into the distance to, to look to him. Implication being that you don't always know what he's doing in the present. Many times it's very kind of confusing and dark. I don't know what God's doing, but there's Jesus and I'm running hard and fast after him. And as we're looking to him, what do we see in the text? We're to look to two things. Number one, we're to look to his promises. We're to look to his promises. In verse two is where we're told to remember the promises, and this is sounding very much like Paul in Philippians chapter one, where he says, Look, he who began this good work, he's going to complete it. He's the completer of your faith. He's going to bring it into full fruition. Okay? So, so Paul has every confidence, the author of Hebrews has every confidence that Jesus will actually make good on his investment. You know, if you ever get into a real estate investment property, uh, the bank wants you to lay down earnest money. And they want it to be a large enough sum that you won't want to walk away from the deal. Well, Jesus has invested his blood in you. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus is more invested in your life than you do? And so we look to his promises, and we see what he's accomplished. Do you understand how freeing that is? That when it comes to your self-identity, when it comes to your life direction, when it, when it comes to you trying to figure out what's the next step, what does the next year hold, that ultimately that has nothing to do with you? Do you know how freeing that is? Because in a sense, Jesus is calling you to run a race that he has already won. He's beckoning you to follow him in a race that he's already won. This is kind of how he interacted with his disciples. He, he did not shy away from saying hard things to them, did he? He told Peter, John 21, hey, Peter, hey, look, you follow me, I'm telling you, where this is going to lead you at the end of which, they're, look, they're going to they're do things to you you're not, not going to want them to do. They're going to spread your arms out, they're going to nail you to two planks of wood. It's going to kill you, man. But he looked at his disciples and he said, listen, I'm going to go first. None of us will walk away unscathed, but I'm going first. So when we look to Jesus and we look to his promises, there is solidarity there, and we can, we can rely upon retreating to his perfect sufferings because he came to identify with us in that regard. You look to Jesus. Another thing that we look to, though, not just the promises, but his experience. Well, what did he experience? Well, what he experienced was hostility at the hands of sinners. 
Now, we have got to stop being surprised as a society, just as an evangelical Christian society, we must stop being surprised every single time we experience the world maligning us in some fashion or form. When they put words in our mouth, or worse, they put words in God's mouth. When we are being treated the way that Jesus has been treated, not point for point, I understand that, especially here in the first world west, I understand that, but, but when we begin to experience suffering and sorrow to some measure or modicum of what Jesus experienced, doesn't that kind of inform you that we're doing something right? Get ready to be infuriated by how many of the militant atheists, militant unbelievers, skeptics feel about us, think about us. If it bothers you that this world doesn't like us, I'm going to make you angry. Here we go. I'm going to quote three of the four horsemen of the atheistic apocalypse. Three of the four. Some of you know these names, all of them. Others of you, this might be the first time. Christopher Hitchens, who actually died in 2011, said this in his book, God is Not Great, in the context in which he's writing this is Christianity. Religion should be treated with ridicule, hatred, and contempt. Sam Harris, who is an Atheist philosopher and sociologist says this, the problem with Christianity is that it allows people to believe in mass what only idiots and lunatics could believe in private. Lastly, I think many of us know this name at least. This really takes home the pie. We're all guilty, all of us in this room as Christ followers, we're all guilty of child abuse for teaching children and teenagers our faith. In fact, he'll go on to say, it is worse than sexual abuse. And because that's the case, our children should be taken from us. Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you in order to test you as if something strange has happened to you. And when you do, you can retreat into the perfect sufferings of Christ. And then... You can be glad and rejoice when he comes in his glorious appearing. At some level, folks, if we are experiencing what Christ experienced, we're doing something right. And remember, the book of Hebrews is meant to encourage us. <laughs> if you keep reading in the text, it says like, hey, I know life is hard, I know you're suffering, but like, the gist of it is, at least you're not dead. I don't know how that's supposed to encourage us, but just being real. But what he's saying is at least you're not experiencing what Christ experienced in his full humiliation and his passion on our behalf. You know, sometimes I think we miss the blessing of actually being able to compare ourselves to Jesus. I used to like read like uh, passages like Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where we're told to put on the humility of Christ, told to put on the mind of Christ. And, and I'd read that passage and passages like it and think, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. I don't know how that's supposed to encourage me. Being God in the flesh kind of gives him one leg up on the whole ordeal. But then I was actually counseled by an older brother in the faith. And he said to me, hey, you know, the most remarkable thing about comparing yourself to Jesus is the fact that you can actually do it. Can you imagine if in our race of faith, God held us at a cosmic's arm length away and just shouted at us, do better, do better, do better, do better. It's maddening. 
when eternal consequences are at stake. But he came crashing into our world of darkness, and he came to get us. He came to be slaughtered on our behalf. And then we're given the promise that we can retreat into his perfect sufferings and have solidarity with him. The most remarkable thing about looking to Jesus and doing that comparison with where we are in reference to where he is is the fact that we can actually do it. And brothers and sisters, I know this goes without saying, but I know I need the encouragement. When we go looking to Jesus, we need to remember to actually look at him. I think in today's world, this version tends to be like, hey, what are you doing? I'm just looking to Jesus. Just looking to Jesus. Just, just you know, I'm on my journey. Just looking to Jesus. Some people actually need to focus on and see Jesus in reference to where they are. You need to actually look to him. Some people, they get so busy in our spiritually ADD-driven world, they just like, their life is like just falling apart at some epic level. Their relationships in the church are shot. Their reputation in the community is at an all-time low. Marriages are in disarray. Um, Families are just dysfunctional. And, And so in response to that, they go and join like a fourth Bible study or something. I mean, some people's motto needs to be, don't just do something, stand there. Look to Jesus. Now, I, look, I understand, that, like, I'm not trying to, this is still a sermon on commitment and, and doing things for the Lord. I'm not trying to take away from that. But, but ultimately, ultimately, what you need to do is stand in the gospel. You need to preach to yourself the gospel. You need to surround yourself by a bunch of people that will preach to you the gospel. You need to be held accountable to your identity in the gospel. You need to remember the cross. And when you do, and as you stand there, heal. And then get to work. The last thing some of us need at times is like a fourth Bible study or a third ministry to serve in. There might be a time for that but not at the expense of actually dealing with the issues that are indwelling. Look to Jesus, and when you do actually look to him, stand in the gospel, preach to yourself the gospel, remember the cross, remember the open grave, remember the grace of God, remember this identity that you now have in him, and heal up, and then get to work. And when you're healed, and when you're ready for work, and when you're strong, and you're running your race, because you look to Jesus, then you can, you can do the third point, what we are motivated to do. Pursue the joy of Christ. What held Jesus on the cross? The nails? No, he calmed storms, walked on water, and walked through walls. He could have handled the nails. You have to ask the question like this. What would Jesus had re- have received, or what did he receive that he didn't have before the cross? So you have to kind of answer that, or ask that question. Was it the Father's affection? No, he had that. Was it adoration of the angels? No, he was the darling of heaven from eternity past. He had that. 
what did Jesus not have before the cross that he had after the cross? Look at me. You. You are his joy. You are his joy. When he was hanging on that cross between the two realms he created, heaven and earth, bleeding out, you were on his mind as he was applying that atoning blood to your account. Don't think that you are a lost number in a crowd to God Almighty. He intimately knows you, and he knew you by name before you even existed 20 centuries ago. He thought of you, not a mass sea ocean of people, you. Now, I'm not putting you at the, as, at the center as the central organizing principle of Christianity. You know, you're not at the center. He's at the center. But understand the extent to which he went to come get you. He was committed to that violent end. And because he went first, for his glory and for our eternal benefit, we're able to pursue that joy that he's called us to walk in. The power has been granted to you to do it. Now, in conclusion, because I'm wrapping it up, when we're doing ministry, when we're having gospel influence on high school students, middle school students, elementary school students, in our churches, in our classrooms, in whatever domains we're occupying where we have that sort of gospel influence and voice, I want to leave you with four applications or four encouragements that come from what we just walked through in Hebrews 12, okay? So here we go. Hang with me. Hang with me. Teach the youth culture. The first one is teach the youth culture to love the elderly. Teach young people to love people with white hair or no hair at all. Find unique ways to be around them, to uh, have meals with them, to sing near them in church. Find ways to incorporate them strategically into the ministries that maybe you're overseeing or that you're serving in. Teach the older people to love the younger people in that way. They're not marginalized, they've not been put out to pasture. Be that conduit between the generations. Bring them together. You know how much young men would benefit from like some old school John Wayne style discipleship? Where old man kicks in the door of another young man's heart and says, sit down, shut up, and listen to me. <laughs> this is how you're committed to Christ. This is how you're committed to his church. This is how you love a woman who is your wife. This is how you get a job. This is how you keep a job. This is how you swing a hammer. <laughs> Far too many boys in this world. You know how much young men would benefit from older men just saying, sit down and close your mouth. <laughs> to the glory of God, man. The older saints in your church are the best you have. I don't care if you don't see it. 
I don't care if you theoretically agree with it, but you don't necessarily practically see how it's true. They are the best you have by virtue of them walking on this planet longer than all of you. Find ways to be near them, to be influenced by them, to give them a platform and a voice. The younger generations need it. Number two, teach them to hate sin. Teach the younger generations to hate sin. Sin has always been a bloody ordeal. It's always been a bloody ordeal. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or we'll be killing you. The idea behind that quote is this, that sin is never in neutral. It's always proactive. It's always on the move. You must be killing sin. John Owen will go on to say, let no man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. Sometimes I think we're duped into talking about sin, like, like oh, just a series of poor choices or just like a cool dip south. To talk about sin in such kind of cool and collected ways is actually um, invite a serious and dangerous compromise. John Owens will continue to say, listen to this, listen to this. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery, if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression, if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head, if it could. There is nothing cute or benign about sin. It is malignant, multiplying killer, and we should be killing it. And the most dangerous sort of sin is not found in mere behavior. And college students, really listen to this. The most malignant type of sin is not found in mere behavior. It is found in the disordered desires of heart. In our war against sin, our own sin, we've got to lay the axe at the right root of the issue. You can manipulate externals all you want, but it's never going to give you access to the heart. When you're working with young people, you can doll it up, you can manipulate those externals, but the only thing you'll be able to do if you're successful in that, at the very least, is buy some time before they graduate and leave the house. The worst types of sin are not necessarily the ones that you can see coming at you. It's the ones that are, indw- that are indwelling that reach up and choke you out of nowhere. When you realize that you still have indwelling the ingredients to re-nail Jesus to the cross. But for the grace of God, there is a war. And it's for the mind and it's for the affections. Let's teach young people to hate sin. And the best way to do this is to correspondingly teach the right things to love. You don't just teach them to hate sin without informing them of what to love. The heart is on the search to land somewhere with an affection. You don't teach them to hate something without then reattaching it somewhere else. Teach them to love the gospel. Teach them to love the grace of God. Teach them to love the church. Teach them to love the pursuit of sinlessness. What's the goal and aim of life? I want to be sinless. Another way to put that, I want to be holy. Teach them to love these things and we will effectively teach them to hate sin. Thirdly, and I'm almost done, I know, I'm over time, teach them that laying aside that which weighs them down isn't losing. 
Okay, like the text was saying, teach them that laying aside that which weighs them down isn't losing, it's gaining. The Christian experience is not so much what do I have to give up because it's sin. It should be what do I get to let go of in order to love Jesus? What do I get to lay aside in order to complete the mission? What do I get to walk away from to experience maximum joy in life with Christ? Again, let's reference a runner or, or even a swimmer, what they have to lay aside in order to complete their race. You know, it's actually not against Olympic policy for a swimmer to wear blue jeans and sport a beard. No one does it because it doesn't make sense. Teach them that laying aside isn't losing, it's gaining. And then lastly, and then we're through, teach them that righteousness isn't a what before it's a who. Teach them that righteousness isn't a what before it's a who. Righteousness is who you are before it is what you do. You cannot access the heart by manipulating externals. The Christian experience in atonement is always heart first, then externals. In order to rightly understand this, you need to understand that in the practice of pursuing holiness and Christ-likeness, position comes before practice. Who you are in Christ comes before what you do in Christ. If we teach and model to young people that the gospel is all about merely looking at a particular part, looking a particular way, then we run the danger of making them into young little legalists. They'll look the way people want them to look. They'll talk the way people want them to talk. They'll work the way people want them to work. They'll vote the way people want them to vote. But in order to gain the standard and acquire the look, they'll miss the point. And the point is achieving the beautiful Savior. The point is holiness in the inward being. The point is to one day finally be sinless. And that is our hope because of what Jesus has accomplished in making us related back to God. His cross shows us that he was committed to that violent end. And his resurrection proves he has the power to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it reveals, how it guides and directs, pierces and changes. I pray for this student body. I pray for the faculty. I thank you for the mission that this institution is on. We pray that you would continue to be glorified in all that we do and say today in our studies, in our interactions, in our relationships. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, in the power of the Holy Spirit.